0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: This chapter, he discusses the highest level within this category of the lower level of And the difference between this level and the previous level. In the previous level, you sense that God sees and God hears. And therefore, you check your instincts. In other words, you would rather, you want to sin. You want to speak inappropriately. You want to behave in a way that's inappropriate. You're ready to think something that's inappropriate for you to think. But then you remind yourself and you remember and you realize, you sense that God is standing right in front of you. There's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. So you check your behavior. So I want to act in a certain way, but how can I? God is right here, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I can't. So that keeps you in check. That gives you a certain discipline and that helps you, enables you to be able to do the right thing at all times. But you desire to do the wrong thing. But you check your instincts, you check your, your 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 urges. It keeps you in check. It keeps you honest, it keeps you grounded, it keeps you humble, it keeps you real. You remember and you recognize it and you feel and you sense God's presence all the time. But then there's a higher level. A level in which which he calls Giras elokim, your, your you have, you're in awe of God's greatness. When you're in awe of God's greatness, then you're no longer tempted, not even tempted to do something wrong. Because when you sense godliness, it's not that I want to behave inappropriately, but God is watching, so I can't. When you have a sense of God's greatness, when you're in awe of God's greatness, then you're in awe of something godly. When you sense something godly, then you're no longer even tempted to do something wrong. And the analogy is, it's like the body and the soul. The body doesn't only listen to the soul. The soul fills the body. The body becomes one with the soul. The body becomes completely egoless, unselfconscious. The body becomes one with the soul an expression of the soul. The body becomes part of the soul. You cut your finger, you, f- you hurt, you're hurting. You cut a corpse, nothing happens. You cut the finger, you, you hurt. Because the finger is you. The finger has become you. The body is not a machine. If you cut a machine, the engine doesn't feel it. If you cut your clothes, you don't feel anything. The body is not a machine. The body is alive. The body has become one. Every cell in the body is alive, has become one with the soul, inseparable of the soul. So much so that the body becomes an automatic expression of the soul. The soul wants to move and your body moves. So the body doesn't have an ego. It doesn't have an agenda of its own. What does the body want? I'm nothing. I'm just a vehicle. I'm just a chariot. Whatever the body, whatever the soul wants. You want to move. I move. I become one with you. It's not like the, it's not even like the, um, the writer is holding the pen. Or the builder is holding the axe. The axe and the builder are two separate things. It's a tool. The axe is a tool in the hands of the builder. The pen is a tool in the hands of the writer. But the pen is not the writer. You cut the pen, it's not the writer feels any pain. The body is even more than that. Not only the body becomes a tool, a willing tool in the hands of the soul, the body becomes the soul, becomes absolutely, completely nullified before the soul. I am the soul, whatever, my whole identity is the soul. And they become inseparable. So when a a person realizes, how does a person reach the level of yidath elokim, fear of God, awe of God, when you start sensing Godliness, when you start sensing the greatness of God, that God fills all the worlds, just like the soul fills our body. So God is the soul of the world. We are the, micro, the microcosm. What's true in the microcosm is a reflection of the macrocosm. So to God is the soul. God fills all the worlds. And the almost infinite, multiple worlds. And variated individuality, individuals and realities. And, and God fills, is the life force that fills all the world. Just like the soul fills the body. So when you, when you sense how God is the soul of the world, and God sent and God fills all the worlds, then you become like a body to God. You become egoless. It not only checks your urges and instincts, it nullifies your urges and instincts. My whole being suddenly becomes godly. All I want is godly things. I don't even, I'm not even tempted to do things that, that are not godly. Because this is reality. God is my soul. God is my life. God is my being. God, there is nothing else. And therefore, you, just like the body becomes completely nullified to the soul, egoless to the soul, so too we become completely egoless before God. That's the highest level, within the lower level, of Yiras Elohim, of, of, the, of the sense of awe of Hashem, the sense of Hashem's presence. In a moment, we're going to start learning why... What is the higher level of awe? And why is this level called the lower level of awe? This sounds like a very powerful level. If you become like a body of God and, and it nullifies all your instincts, you no longer even have those instincts because you, you have a sense of godliness. When you sense godliness, it completely nullifies any sense of ego, any sense of self, that you're no longer even tempted to do something wrong. Not only you don't do anything wrong, you check your urges and your instincts, your animalistic urges and instincts. You're no longer even tempted to do something. You become so in tune with Kadim. What could be higher than this? Why is this the lower level of awe? What's the higher level of it? And he says, now ever, there's a higher level, even, even, from, even of this level. So the previous three levels that we discussed, just discussed, this is the gateway, that the foundation, that leads to Torah and mitzvah. This is what motivates you to study the Torah and do the mitzvah. When you have the sense of awe when you have this accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven when you sense that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears a God is stand, standing right in front of me and is always with me and watching me and cares about me how I behave and how I think and how I act and the higher level when you actually have a sense of godliness, the more you understand the infinite complexity of the universe and you realize that God is, animates and sustains and creates and animates and sustains and gives vitality <laughs> all these mirate creatures and all these different levels and worlds. And, and suddenly you're in awe of God. And when you're in awe of God, it nullifies any, any sense of ego, any sense of separation, any sense of um, uh, self. completely. You're nullified before God. This leads you to do Torah and Mitzvot. This is the foundation on which the Torah and Mitzvot are rest. Because a Jew mode has this motivation, this has to be the motivation, not only to protect you from doing something wrong, to fulfill the 365 prohibitions. This will check my urges, check my instincts. But this is the foundation, like we learned earlier, for fulfilling the 248 active mitzvah, the do's. Because the mitzvah has to be founded on a sense of awe, oh, on a sense of I am serving Hashem. And a sense it is an eye that sees. God is my king and my sovereign. A sense of the greatness of God, which motivates me to do Torah and do mitzvot. But this is all the lower level of awe that leads to mitzvot. And that's what the Mishnah says he's going to explain. That this is the lower level of fear that leads to wisdom which refers to Torah and mitzvot. But then there's a higher level. On the bottom of page 638.
2: However, as for a yira ila, a fear stemming from a sense of shame before Hashem's greatness, fear of Hashem stemming from a sense of shame is similar to the shame and total sense of ab- abnegation a person feels when he is in the presence of a truly outstanding tzaddik. His shame is not from that great man's external and revealed powers, as would be the case when one fears a king. Fearing a king only involves fear of his his externality, which finds expression in his rule. Generally, the more extensive the king's domain, the greater will be the fear of him. The same is true of the fear of Hashem, which results from contemplating the garments and revelation of godliness in in all worlds. It is therefore termed Yira Tata, a lower level of the fear of Hashem, inasmuch as it does not evoke the same degree of shame and self nullification as, as is evoked by recognizing the greatness of a truly righteous person. There, the shame and fear is prompted by the great man's essence, The nullification and shame will therefore be total. Thus, Yira ila is a fear which stems from a sense of shame when one is confronted by Hashem's greatness.
1: Just like the difference when you're in awe of a king. So you're in awe of the king's grandeur, his projection, his greatness, the fact that he's a mighty king, the fact that he's the king of kings, or he runs many countries, he's the emperor... He has millions of people, millions of soldiers under his command. And the fact that he's such a successful ruler, he's able to rule such, such a vast kingdom. You know, when you meet the mightiest king alive, the most powerful man, you're in awe. But you're in awe of his majesty. You're in awe of his grandeur, of his projection. You're in awe of the, you see the great, his great kingdom and you see his, so it's, in a sense, it's something very external to the king. You're in awe, you see the king in action, you're in awe of his projection. But when you're standing in the presence of greatness, you're standing next to Einstein, and you feel completely like a nothing, (laughs) less than the zero, when you're standing in the presence of greatness, and you're just in awe of his greatness. It's the effect, it's not his projection or anything external. It's who he is, his inner greatness. When you're standing in the presence of such inner greatness, you feel like a squash bug. You feel like nothing. I, I, I am a complete nothing. The greatest physics professor in the, in the university in, in, his, in his classroom. He's the big. He's the big. He's the big professor. When he's standing next to Einstein, he feels less than nothing, because his whole wisdom, his whole brilliance, is absolutely pathetic, banal, absolutely insignificant. His whole understanding, his level of understanding, is so nothing in comparison to so and so and. Of, of a genius like Einstein that he feels like nothing there's an inner shame there's an inner sense of, of nothingness in comparison to this greatness so it's the inner greatness of, of Einstein that, that the person feels completely ashamed he doesn't know where, where to put himself he feels like an absolute nothing so when you're standing in the presence of a great tzaddik when you're standing in the presence of a great person a genuinely great person there's an inner shame it's not from anything external and we're not talking about the tzaddik is going to hurt me or going to harm me or, or the tzaddik can see through me because he's a holy man so he can look at my eyes and look at my forehead and see exactly all my secrets I can't hide anything before him the people would go by the Rebbe they would put the hats <laughs> lower the hats <laughs> over the heads he shouldn't be able to see their forehead as if that would make a difference, you know. <laughs> a person who can see your forehead, even with your hat, it wouldn't. You can't really cover. Up. Okay, but that, that's. But then there's an inner shame. Just when you're standing in the presence of greatness, you just feel like like nothing. So that's the ultimate level of awe. We we you completely don't exist. So it's not like when you're standing in the presence of a king, you can't say you don't exist. Of course, he will exist because you're impressed by the king's grandeur, his projection, his, his, the mighty king, how mighty he is, and how powerful he is, and how great he is. And he's a king over so many people and, you know, and he rules so many lands and he, he runs so much. And, and the more you understand and the more you realize how great he is, the more, va- the more you appreciate the vastness of his kingdom, the more you're in awe of the king. You can't say you feel like a nothing. You don't feel like a nothing. On the contrary, you appreciate the greatness of a the king. There's somebody here who appreciates the greatness of the king. The more, the greater you are, the more you can take in and you can appreciate the vastness of his kingdom, the more you can appreciate the king. So there's somebody here who's appreciating the king. You know, you're not a nothing. So you respect the king, you're in honor of the king, and, and, and you're in awe of the king, and, and therefore you become, in a certain sense, nullified before the king. But you can't say that you, you're completely nullified before him. But when you're standing in the presence of a tzaddik, in the presence of greatness, when you're taken in by the inner essence of, of, the, of, the, of the tzaddik, his inner greatness, not his effect on the world outside of him, how he's running the world, what a great administrator he is, what a great king he is, what a great leader he is just his inner essence his inner greatness And compared to his inner greatness you simply are less than a squatter bug you, you don't exist you, 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 you don't know where to put yourself you're so ashamed and embarrassed because you feel like nothing your whole being is absolutely nothing in comparison to this greatness that's standing in front of you so there you are nothing so it's the ultimate level of awe when as a result of the awe you, it's as if you don't exist that's a complete nullification. And this is the higher level of awe.
2: And an inner fear that derives from the inward aspects of godliness within the worlds, wherein a person is cognizant of the inward and essential aspects of godliness, and not only of the external qualities of godliness, which are closed in all the worlds... The worlds are wholly nullified before this inward aspect of godliness with a complete and total nullification. Bitl bin mitzrut, Awareness of this higher level of nullification leads to the higher level of fear. Yira ilah. So
1: when you sense the highest level of the lower category of fear, which is yirat we have a sense of God's greatness and godliness, but it comes as a result of you understanding the infinite vastness of this world and you realize how God is creating this multiplicity and all this infinite, variated world and many worlds and parallel universes And, and the more you understand how infinitely great the universe is as we discussed the other week infinitely complex the more you're in awe of God That God is king of this universe. God is the soul of this world. He created such an infinitely vast universe. You're just in awe. You're in astonishment. You're in a state of awe of God. But since this awe derives from the world, so you're not nullified. On the contrary, you appreciate the world and the infinite complexity of the world. And the more you understand and you comprehend the infinite complexity of the world, the more you appreciate the greatness of God. So you're not completely nullified. No, on the contrary, your whole nullification, your, your awe, sense of awe comes from God's projection, from His grandeur, from His greatness. So you exist and you're in a position to appreciate God's greatness. So yes, you become nullified, you become elevated, you become nullified that you no longer have any urges and instincts for anything negative. Your urges and instincts become godly. Just like the body becomes egoless and the body becomes nullified before the soul. Just like the body. No one is going to say the body doesn't exist. What do you mean the body doesn't exist? Of course the body exists. The body is a vessel, is a vehicle, is a container for the soul. The body is a very, very meaningful existence. So that's what it means. That as a result of this awe, suddenly your life becomes meaningful. That, that you, you have a meaningful existence. Because I'm in a position to appreciate the vastness and the infinite greatness of God and his infinite grandeur and and projection and greatness, and I'm in awe of God. So therefore, my life suddenly becomes elevated. Instead of having animalistic urges and instincts, my life suddenly becomes meaningful. I become nullified before God. I sense godly things, and I become nullified before God, and that's why I want to do Torah, and I want to do mitzvot, I want to lead a godly life, I want to think like a Jew, and speak like a Jew, and act like a Jew. But to say that I become nothing... You can't say I become nothing. I'm not nothing. On the contrary, I become something very meaningful, very precious, very special. That's what happens when you're in the presence of a king. And the greater the king, but here, the higher level of law is when you become absolutely nothing. When you're so in awe of God that you lose any sense of self. There's absolutely no sense of self. You're not even like a body to the soul. You sense all there is is God. There's nothing but God. Because what you're sensing is God's inner essence. The way God sees himself. Not the way God is projecting himself. God's grandeur. The way God is running the world and creates the world. And is like a soul that fills the body. But God, the way God sees himself. God's essence. And in relation to God's essence, we don't exist. It's as if the whole world doesn't exist. All there is is God. Nothing changed. After he created, before he created, it's all the same. God is alone. Just like he was alone before he created, he remains alone even after he created. So when you're in the presence of God's essential greatness, the way God sees himself, when you have that higher level, that higher sense of godliness, there's absolutely no ego. Not only there's no ego, there's no entity. The lower level of of awe of God, there's no ego you have a sense of yirat you send something godly not only that there's an eye that sees and the ear that hears and therefore you check your urges and instincts no you send something godly so there, there is no ego but there's an entity when you're standing in front of the king and you're in awe of the king you become nullified before the king you're overwhelmed and you're in awe and you lose your ego but you're an entity you're a meaningful entity I'm standing in the presence of greatness I appreciate the greatness I'm in a position to appreciate the greatness. I understand I see the vastness of the universe. I see the vastness of this kingdom. And I appreciate the fact that this one individual is able to run and be a king. You know, imagine if you were standing in the, in the presence of uh, of Alexander the Great, you know, one of the greatest kings that ruled almost, almost over the whole world. I, you would be in awe that this one individual could run the whole world single-handedly. And could, could inspire so many millions of troops and soldiers and run and run. So when you're standing in the presence of greatness, of a great leader, of a great king, you're in awe. So you lose your ego, but you don't lose your entity. The higher level of fear of awe is when you're so in awe of God. Not only do you lose your ego, you lose your entity. There's nothing. All you sense is God. You're so embarrassed, ashamed. You're just standing in the presence of greatness. You just lose any sense of self, not only any sense of ego, any sense of self. You become completely nullified before God. That's the highest level of love.
2: Concerning this level of fear, it was saved by our sages. If there is no wisdom, there is no fear. This level of fear must be replaced by wisdom.
1: So now we understand the Mishnah. The Seeming Contradiction in Ethics of Our Fathers. In chapter 3, in Ethics of Our Fathers, first he says, if there's no fear, there's no wisdom. And then he continues in the same breath, in the same sentence, if there's no wisdom, there's no fear. So checkmate, where do you start? You can't start with wisdom, because you just said, with no, there is no wisdom." if there's no fear, there's no wisdom. So you have to start with fear, but you can't start with fear, because you just said, if there's no wisdom, there's no fear. So what do we do? So he explains that we're talking about two different levels. There's there's fear and there's fear. There's awe and there's awe. There's the lower level of awe and there's the
0: higher level of awe.
1: So the lower level of awe, he says, if there's no awe, there's no fear, there's no wisdom. Because that's the foundation for Torah mitzvah. You have to accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven. A higher level is you have to... Sense that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. You have to sense God's presence. And even a higher level, the level that we just discussed here, you have to sense God's greatness. Like how God fills all the worlds. God is the soul of the world. God animates this infinitely complex universe. And every moment He's constantly creating and sustaining and animating. And therefore, the more you understand how infinitely complex the universe is, the more you're in awe of God's greatness. And therefore, you become completely nullified before God, and that motivates you to do the Torah, wisdom. The fear leads to wisdom. This is the cornerstone. This is the, the foundation that leads you to do Torah and mitzvah, because you want to do something godly. If you have a sense of God and a sense of awe of God, then you, want, you have to do something godly. You have to act godly, live godly, think godly, and speak godly. That's Torah and mitzvah, doing all the mitzvah, the active mitzvah, let alone not violating the prohibitions. But then, once you reach a level of wisdom, of Torah, mitzvot, if then it continues. If there's no f- wisdom, then there's no fear. Because now you're talking about the higher level of fear, the higher level of awe. When not only you, you lose your sense of ego, not only that you check your urges and instincts, and not only you lose your sense of ego, you're no longer even tempted to do anything wrong, anything animalistic. Or you want to do is something godly. But the higher level of fear is you lose any sense of self. You become completely egoless. Because you're standing, because of wisdom. Once you do Torah and Mitzvah, that leads you to a level of wisdom, which is going to explain now. And that level of wisdom leads you to the higher sense, a sense of complete self nullification. Which is the whole purpose of Torah and Mitzvah. Like it says in the verse, God says to the Jewish people, I will command you to do Torah and Mitzvah in order that you should fear me. In other words, the Torah and Mitzvot lead a person, lead a person to wisdom, which leads a person to the h- ultimate level, where you sense God's presence, and you're standing in God's presence, and you sense God's inner greatness, God's point of view. You see the world from God's point of view. From God's point of view, nothing exists but God, and therefore you become completely nullified. You, you no, no, not only aren't you an ego, but you're not even any, a, a, an independent being. You become completely nullified nullified, all there is is God. This is the ultimate level of awe that a Jew can reach. But the only way to reach it is you have to follow the sequence. First, you have to start with a lower level of awe. That's something that you could achieve on your own, which leads to Torah mitzvah. Once you do Torah mitzvah, that leads you to the level of wisdom that we're going to learn right now, which leads you to the ultimate level of awe, the higher level of awe. Like you're standing in the presence of greatness. You become completely nullified. How do you
0: know when you're
1: there? <laughs> I guess, I don't know if we'll ever know, but I guess if you if you see it, you know it. You know, there's certain things that you... Well, if you're there, then you're not there. Because the whole point is that there is no you. <laughs> so the moment you, you, there's a you that's there, then you know that you're not there yet. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you have to think about
1: it, then that's not it. Right. It's, but it's an experience, like you're standing in the presence of greatness. you ever experienced that? You know, we, we, had, we were fortunate. We had the experience of standing in front of the Rebbe. When you stood right in front of the Rebbe, it's very hard to describe But You know, you had that, you had that experience when you're standing in the presence of, of a tzaddik,
0: what he's describing you're here. The whole, you're not saying
1: all the time? Right, a moment. Uh, For someone to reach this level constantly, obviously you have to be a very high level. This is not for everyone. The lower levels of war, that's a requirement for everyone. Everyone could be a faithful servant, could accept upon themselves the yoke of heaven, could dedicate and devote themselves to Hashem, to to be a faithful soldier. That's a requirement. Without that, you can't be a Jew. You can't be connected to holiness. That's a requirement in every single Jew. Even the higher level to realize that God is always standing right in front of me and God is watching the eye that sees and the ear that hears even that level is something that every Jew can reach even the third level that we just discussed that by looking at this world and looking how infinitely complex the world is and realizing that God animates this world and sustains the world and God is the soul of the world and therefore you see what a great king God is and you see his projection and you see how great he is you're in awe of God and therefore you lose your sense of ego Even that level is something that it's achievable. It comes through meditation. It comes through reflection. But it's something that we can work on. It's something we could achieve. The higher level of awe, this level of awe, is not necessarily achievable. Not perhaps for people like, I can speak for myself, not not, not for ordinary people. This is a very, very high level. This is a level of a tzaddik. This is a very high level, a person to reach such a level. We're not only, you, you, you're egoless, but there's no entity. There's nothing but God. You're not even like a body to the soul. All there is is God, let's be honest. And to feel that and to live that 24-7, this is not something for people like you and I. I mean, this is, this is a very, very special, special level. But it's important for us to know that, that something like this exists. <laughs> you know, something we can aspire to. Something we can look forward to. But but this is the ultimate level. But let's now we are going to explain this level a little more in depth.
3: For Chochma is koach the level of nullification which is termed ma, what, as the verse says, and we are ma, a phrase that expresses the complete and total nullification which is termed bitumitzius. And Chochmah comes from ain, nothingness. For which reason Chochma is ain and knowledge.
1: So Chachma is like the creative ability within the person. And the word Chachma is Koyachma, what? Because Chachma is a sense of something that you can't put into words yet. It's vague, it's, you can't articulate it yet. It's something that's very vague, it's Mah. And where does Chachma come from? The creative spark comes from a place that we don't even know. You know, you're puzzling over something, you're very troubled by something, and suddenly, out of the blue, you have your Eureka moment, an idea pops into your head. seemingly even out of nowhere. It can come in the most unexpected time. You're frustrated, you're, you're, you're upset, you don't understand. The more you learn, the more, the more uh, difficult it is. And suddenly, you could be taking a walk, could be you're not even thinking about it, and suddenly you have the Eureka moment, Ah, like a, like a lightning, a lightning. Bolt of lightning. Suddenly an illumination. A brilliant idea. I never even thought about it. It takes me a whole new direction. And now everything makes sense. Where does this bolt of lightning come from? I have no idea. Like out of the blue. Where did it come from? It came from our subconscious. So obviously there's a whole reality within us that we're completely oblivious to. Unaware of. So Chachma is like the window to the soul. Chachma is that ability. The creative person has to, have, has to be egoless. Bina, the one who's articulate, who's very analytical, and very articulate, and very logical, is very present. He has a very great presence of mind. It's very egotistical. He understands. He's in charge. He's in control. He's aware of himself. He's brilliant. If you have any doubts, he'll be the first one to tell you. But then there's the quality of Chachma. The quality of Chachma, the creative ability is someone who has to step back. His premise is, I don't know, I don't understand. Because it, it's, he's looking for something deeper, and he's trying, he's open. He's open to something that's beyond him. And he's puzzled, and he's troubled, and he's looking, and he's broken. And it's that brokenness, in that sense, that when you reach a point... where you're you're completely broken and puzzled and and you feel like you've reached a dead end and, and you're so anxious and agitated. It's like when the seed has rotten, when the seed has reached a point that it has totally rotted, then the new life can form. The seed can start sprouting. Because you become a vessel, you become a vehicle to allow something new into your life. The problem is with a logical, analytical person is that his mind is closed. He doesn't let anything new in. He only lets in whatever fits into his frame of reference. Anything that doesn't fit into his frame of reference, he doesn't allow anything new into his life. So first you have to deceive as the rat. When you become completely broken, that's the vessel, that's the vehicle that allows a new direction to your life, a new insight that you would never have thought of. Because it's not a logical thing. It's like a eureka moment. It's a bolt of lightning that comes out of nowhere. A totally new direction. You would have never have come up with it. And this is the genius of the creative person He's able to see things that no one else can see. Think Other people can sit and study it logically for a thousand years and they would never see what he sees just because he looks at it completely with a new, a new way of looking at it, a fresh way of fresh insight. So this is the quality of Chachma. The quality of Chachma, the creative quality, is, is really it's the quality of self-nullification, of removing your ego, getting out of the way. When you get out of the way, then you enable the subconscious to communicate to you. As long as you have it all figured out and you're clear and you're in charge and you're in control, you're a closed book. You can't fill a full cup. When your ego, when you empty your ego and the cup is empty, then the subconscious could f- communicate with you. So the quality of chachma is really a quality of bittle, of self nullification, of egolessness. That's why he says, A and if, if there's no chachma, if you don't have this quality of egolessness, if you don't have this quality of self nullification, then you cannot reach the level of yira, the ultimate level of yira, where you become completely, completely nothing. So, this is the quality of chachma, which also comes from nothing. It's wisdom that comes from seemingly from nowhere.
0: And our savior said, Who is wise? He who sees that which is born and created, that is to say that the wise person is—he who sees how everything is born and created from non-being to being by means of the word of Hashem and the breath of his mouth, as it is written, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts were created.
1: So the simple meaning, the rabbis say, who is a wise man who sees the future, means someone who can anticipate the future sees the consequences of his actions today. Most people live for the moment. They don't think ahead. You know, if you were to see the consequences of your actions today, it would change your behavior today. But, you know, let me enjoy myself now, and I'll worry about the consequences later. So that wise man is someone who sees the consequences. Fine. But here he's explaining it on on a much deeper level. Who is a wise man who sees how the world is constantly being born, how the world is constantly being recreated, that creation is not a one-time act, that God created the world 5,770 years ago, but that each and every moment, this very moment, God is speaking and bringing the world into existence. So recreation is a dynamic creative act that is happening each and every moment the world is being recreated all over again. And therefore,
0: therefore, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts, all of creation, are truly nullified out of existence within the word of Hashem and the breath of his mouth. The level of their nullification is thus not that of bitol Hayesh, but of bitol Bemetziut, and are accounted as nothing at all, as naught and nothingness indeed, just as the light and brightness of the sun are nullified within the body of the sun itself.
1: This we learned at great length in the gateway of unity and faith, the second part of the Tanya, that since Hashem creates the world each and every moment through His speech, and therefore, since the speech is constantly within us, God's divine energy, creative energy is constantly within us, therefore, we are nothing other than the divine energy. Just like the flying ball. When you throw a ball and the ball flies, it's not that the ball suddenly became a flying ball. It's the energy that's pushing the ball that's causing the ball to fly. And at the moment the energy stops, the ball reverts back to its stationary position, falls back down. That means that even when the ball is flying, what's really flying, it's not the ball that has become a flying object, it's the energy that's pushing it. So to creation. Creation is inherently, we don't exist. Our whole existence is because God's divine energy is constantly creating us. God is speaking and bringing us into existence at this very moment. Therefore, it's really the divine energy within us. That's who we really are. That's our substance. That's how be. Just like the light. The light is completely dependent on the sun. Could the light exist for one moment without the sun when it's dark outside? And you can't see the sun. There's no light. Could you bottle the light? can't bottle the light. Light can't exist for one moment. Like an electrical current can't exist one moment unless it's plugged in and connected to its source, to generate. So we are completely dependent on God. But the light of the sun, it's not a good analogy, because the light of the sun, there is the sun, and then there's the light of the sun. The light of the sun exists outside of the sun. So there is the light, the sun itself, and then there is the light. So it's true that the light of the sun is a dependent entity. It's completely dependent on its source. But it's an entity nonetheless. It's a dependent entity. It can't exist for one moment without its source. It has nothing other than its source. It reflects its source. It points to its source. All it is, is everything it has is from its source. But it's connected, but it's an independent entity. It exists outside of the sun. So you would think that we too, we are an Yes, a dependent entity. We can't exist for one moment without the divine energy, without God's creative energy. So we are completely dependent on God, but we are a dependent entity. So he explained, no, it's not only we're a dependent entity. We are like the light of the sun that's within the sun. The light of the sun, when the light of the sun is within the sun. Because if you can't give what you don't have, if the sun can give off light, surely the sun has light. But within the sun, it's as if the light doesn't exist. All there is is the sun. The light in the sun doesn't add anything to the sun. All there is is the sun. This, the light in the sun is completely nullified before the sun. So too, since the divine energy as the constantly us, is within us, so we are like swallowed up within our source. So therefore we are like the light of the sun that never left the sun. And all there is is the source. So we are completely nullified within the divine creative energy. So all that exists is really the divine creative energy. So not only aren't we a dependent entity, we're not not an entity. All there is, is is the source. There is nothing else but the source. So this is the Chacham. The Chacham, the wise man, is someone who sees that we are constantly being born, we're constantly being created. God's divine energy and His speech is constantly creating us and therefore we are constantly swallowed up within our source. And if we are constantly swallowed up within our source then all that exists is the source. There is nothing else. We are not even a dependent entity. We are non an entity. Which leads to the higher level of, of awe. That not only are we egoless. You could be egoless but still be a, an entity. An egoless entity. No, we're not even an egoless entity. We're non-entity. All there is is the source. All there is is God. We're completely nullified before God. But that still needs explanation. He's not, he's not done.
0: Once sunlight has left the sun, one can perceive actual rays and illumination. However, when the light of the sun is found in its source, the body of the sun itself is completely nullified and does not exist in a luminous state. All that exists there is the source of light, the sun itself. So, too, all our created beings nullified in their source, the word of God that creates them, ex nihilo. When a person ponders this matter, it will so affect him that his nullification to God will be at the level of the tool, the met deed. And no man should accept himself from this principle, and the principle governing all created beings about which he understands that they are totally nullified to God. He should realize that... But also, his body and Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama are utterly nullified in the word of God that created them.
1: It's one thing to say that the whole world is nullified, but the real challenge is to say that I am nullified, that I have no ego, to be able to get beyond my own ego, you know, to understand that someone else is nullified and the world around me is nullified. The real challenge is because we are only in control of ourselves. The real challenge is to nullify myself. What that means is that my true existence is, is an egoless being. My true s- state of being is, is a state of non existence. Therefore, how can I be egotistical? How can I be so disconnected, egotistical, with such an exaggerated sense of self, if all that exists is God and nothing exists but God, and before God, I'm not even, not only am I not an, uh, uh, an ego existence, I'm not even an egoless existence, I'm not even a dependent existence. All that exists is the source. All that is is God. There is nothing else. I'm not even like a body to the soul. So how am I so egotistical? So this has to help a person overcome his ego. Instead of having a healthy sense of ego, which fragments one from the other, and separates us and you know, so this helps us overcome that 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 sense of ego, which is really the ultimate, ultimate point. This is what it's all about that we should become egoless. We should nullify our own egos before God. This is not just an abstraction that the world doesn't exist. It means I don't exist. The I. I don't exist. There is no I. That's the ultimate level. When you come to a realization that there is no I, there is no ego, there is no I. All there is is Hashem. You become completely nullified before Hashem. That's the ultimate level. That's the highest level that a Jew can reach. There's no sense of I. There's no sense of ego. But the question is, it's not simple. And that's what what he's going to explain in the next uh, sentence. Because it's true that we are swallowed up within our source. We are swallowed up within the divine energy, the divine speech, God's creative energy that's constantly creating us. But still, how can you say that we don't exist? Because the whole point of speech is to speak to you. The whole point of speech is to speak to you. The whole point of the divine creative energy is To create you. So therefore you can't say that in relation to the divine creative energy, I don't exist. It's like a king. The whole point of a king is, you can't be king over yourself. It's to be a leader, to be a king over others. So you can't say that in relation to the king, the subjects don't exist. It's the subjects that make the king. Of course the subjects exist. The subjects nullify themselves before the king, they bow down before the king, they are completely nullified before the king. They coronate the king. They accept him as their sovereign and their king, even, even when it comes to life and death. But you can't say the subjects don't exist. It's the subjects that make the king. So too, when you speak to someone, you can't say speaking means a relationship. You can't say, if I have a relationship with you, you don't exist. What do you mean? It's that relationship. Without you, I don't have a relationship without someone to speak to the speech is, is meaningless so if God is speaking to us and he's creating us through his speech so our existence has to have meaning and purpose God is creating us so the divine creative energy that's creating us by, by definition it means that our existence has some meaning because God at this very moment is bringing us into existence if, our, if we don't exist if we're non-entity what's the meaning of God bringing us into existence so by its very definition, we have to have some existence. So how can you become completely nullified before God? How can you say that we are in a state of non-being and non-entity and non-existence? when, Because we're nullified before the divine speech that's creating us. The divine speech is telling us that we exist. That God is bringing something into existence. Something meaningful. Something that's worthwhile for God to bring into existence. So that's what he's going to explain now.
3: When his word is united with his thought and God's thought, in turn, is one with God himself. Thus the nullification is not only to God's word, but is a total nullification to God himself, as has been explained above at length, chapters 20 and 21. By analogy with the human soul, one utterance of whose speech and thought of veritably as nothing, when compared to the power of
2: speech, which is limitless.
1: The explanation is, yes, in relation to God's speech and God's creative energy, God is communicating with us, so by definition there has to be someone to communicate with. God is creating someone to communicate with. When we speak, the person we're communicating with already exists. God, through his speech, creates someone to communicate with. But by definition there is someone to communicate with. There is a significant entity that which God is bringing into existence and it has meaning, and that entity has meaning, just like the body and the soul. In relationship to the soul, the body has meaning. The body is a vessel to the soul. The body expresses the soul. The body is completely ego-less and becomes one with the soul. The body is a, a reflection of the soul, becomes a Expression of the soul. But the body is something in relation to the soul by definition. If the soul is animating the body, then the body has significance and meaning in relation to the soul. The subjects have meaning in relation to the king. Because without the subject, the king is no king. When you speak and you communicate, obviously you're having a relationship with the person you're speaking to. Because otherwise, who am I talking to? So, so by definition, that relationship has meaning and significance. And the listener has meaning and significance. It's an entity worth communicating to and worth speaking to. So if God is speaking and bringing us into existence, our being has meaning and has significance. But it's the source, our source, which is God's speech, which is completely nullified within God himself. Because God's speech, just like human speech, human speech is the most external, superficial part of the person. Other than action. God speaks and he creates. God's speech is his action. So speech is the lowest, the most external, the most superficial part of a person. If you live alone, you don't need speech. If you're Robinson Crusoe, you have no one to speak to. There's no need for speech. Speech is the most external. You want to project yourself to others. You want to communicate what's going on in your mind, in your heart, your feelings, your thoughts to others. It's the most superficial part of a person. So what's speech in relationship to the person himself, the source of speech? Let's say you say ten words, God created the world with ten words. What are ten words in comparison in relation to the source of those ten words? You. You spoke those ten words. Well, let's peel away the person that's behind these ten words. There's the thought. And then what's behind the thought? There's the emotion and what's behind the emotion there's the comprehension and what's behind the comprehension there's the subconscious and what's behind the subconscious the, the essence of the person what is ten words in comparison to the source of these ten words the person himself it, it's absolutely insignificant it's absolutely in a state of non-being and non-existence where were these ten words before you spoke you came up with these ten words it's your ten words you own it it's your words they come from within you. He didn't pluck these words from thin air. Yet where were these words before you were in a state of communication? When you were alone? When you had this desire in your heart or you had this raw comprehension in your mind or you had this sense? Where were these ten words in a state of non-being and non-existence? You yourself didn't even feel you had these ten words. These words did not exist. They're there. They come from within you. You are the source. So they must be inside of you somewhere and yet while they're within you, they're in a state of absolute non-being and absolute non-entity. And they mean nothing, they add nothing. It's a non-event, it's a, it means absolutely nothing. So too, all of creation, God created the world with His speech, with ten words, ten utterances. So what are ten words in relationship to God, the Creator? Absolutely nothing. God can't even find these ten words in Himself, so to speak. It's nothing. So the whole source of creation, the divine source of creation, the divine creative energy is completely nullified within God himself. It's from God's point of view, from the inside out, from God's point of view, the way God sees and experiences himself. Ten words? What ten words? Can't even find it. What ten words? It's not that it occupies God. What does God do? He's busy creating worlds. Just like when we speak ten words. Does that really exhaust who you are? Oh, these ten words exhausted your ability to speak. Exhausted your ability to think. Exhausted your ability to feel. Exhausted your ability to comprehend. Exhausted your subconscious. Exhausted your essence. Exhausted. It doesn't even scratch the surface of the surface of the surface. It doesn't even scratch the surface of my ability to speak. I can speak infinite words in my lifetime. So what are ten words? Nothing. I can't even find it within myself. It's a non-event. So the whole source of creation, the heavens and the earth, the upper higher spiritual realms, higher levels of consciousness, the angels, mysticism, spirituality, the whole universe, the source of the universe, it's God's words, God's speech, the ten utterances. And these ten words in relation to God Himself, the source of these ten words, is in the state of absolute non-being and non-entity. The only difference is when we speak, after we speak, the words have, have an existence because they already left you. But when these words were within you before you spoke these words, they, they were there, they're, they're inside of you. You spoke these words. Obviously, they come from you. They had to be inside of you somewhere. But you can't even find them. It, it's meaningless. It has no meaning. It means absolutely nothing. So when God speaks, even while He's speaking, even after He speaks... These words never leave God. So these words always remain within the source. So from God's point of view, the way God is looking at this world right now, at this moment, while He's speaking and creating us at this very moment, from God's point of view, not only the worlds are completely nullified, that we're not even like a body to the soul, God is the soul and the world and the universe is the body. There is no body. There is nothing. These words are completely nullified before God. All there is is God. There is nothing else. All there is is the sun. Like the light of the sun within the sun. All there is is the sun. Just like the words within the soul of the person that speaks these words, before he spoke these words, all there is is the soul, the source. There there are no words. You can't find any words. So the whole world is in a state of non-being, non-existence. So our true state is non-ego. No sense of I. A complete state of egolessness. Not only egolessness but also a state of non-being and non-entity. Not even a dependent entity, like the light of the sun outside the sun. No, like the light of the sun within the sun. We don't exist. From God's point of view, we don't exist. And this is the wise man. The wise man is able to see how God is constantly creating the world through his speech. And God's speech is completely absorbed within God himself and completely in a state of nothing, non-being and non-existence none within God himself. Because this is not what God does. He creates worlds. It's it's a complete non-event to God. He can't even find... That ability to create worlds within God, he can't even find it within himself, so to speak. It it, it means absolutely nothing to God. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of who God is and what God is. Not even the surface of the surface. It's completely nullified. It's in a state of non-being and non-existence. And therefore, since our source is nullified before God, therefore our true state of being is also a state of non-existence, non-entity... All that exists is God. There is nothing else but God. This is the higher level of fear, of awe. When you sense God's presence, the way God sees himself from the inside out, not how God is king, how God projects himself, God's grandeur, how God communicates with us and speaks to us and is king over us, but God's essence, the way God sees himself, his own essence, and in relation to God's essence, we are in a state, not only we are in a state of non-being, our source, our divine source is in the state of non-being and non-existence, which explains why we call creation yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. It makes no sense. What do you mean something from nothing? God is creating us. God is nothing and we're something. The correct terminology should have been nothing from something. God is something and He creates us, which are nothing. Why why do we call creation yesh me'ayin, something from nothing? God is nothing. And the answer is he's referring to the divine energy that's creating us. The words and the speech and the ten utterances and the, the, the divine creative energy that creates us, that is nothing in comparison to God himself, the source of the speech, the speaker. The words in relationship to the speaker, the words and the creative energy are in a state of absolute nothingness in comparison to God. So how much more so we who are created from this creative energy? We are our true nature is, our true state of being is a state of non-being, no ego, no I a state of complete uh, 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 non-being and non-entity this is the ultimate level of yira the ultimate level of awe Literally,
3: one word counts utterly in comparison to man's thought which is the source of speech, even more so when a single utterance is compared to the source of thought the power of intellect or emotion, depending on whether the individual is thinking about intellectual or emotional things Surely, then, the spoken word cannot in any way be compared to the stone of itself. There is, however, a difference between man's speech and God's. When the human being speaks, the sound emitted from its mouth departs from its source and becomes a separate entity. God's greatest speech, however, never departs, having forbid from its source, that source being God himself, who is omnipresent. Thus, divine speech is always found within its source. Now it becomes even more clear that God's word, the source of creation, is truly and totally nullified to and unified as God. This all creation is completely modified to this is what is meant by the verse, behold the fear of Hashem that is wisdom Was explained earlier, the level of Yura Yat and Bitul the Matsuud is the same as wisdom. It too is essentially bitul the matsiut. However, one cannot attain this fear and wisdom except by means of the fulfillment of the Torah and the spot, through Yura which is an external fear. This is what is meant by the statement that there is no fear, there is no wisdom. First, must come Tata uh, and the resulting performance of Torah and Mitzvot. we begin to
1: attain wisdom, Okay, so now we understand the ethics of our fathers. First, you have to start. The gateway is ha Tata, the lower level of Or, and the three different levels that we discussed, which leads to Torah and Mitzvot, to wisdom, which then leads to wisdom to be able to see the divine, to see how God creates the world each and every moment and realize. We are nothing other than we are swallowed up within our source, which is God's speech, God the ten utterances, and God's creative ability. And these ten utterances, in turn, God's speech, is completely absorbed within its own sort within God Himself, and completely nullified. And therefore, we realize that we also completely nullified. And therefore, we not only do we lose, do we reach a state of egolessness, but we reach a state where. We are in a non- non-being, non-entity, egoless, no I. We are standing before Hashem and completely ashamed and completely nullified before the essence of Hashem in a state, of, a state of a complete state of uh, egolessness. Let's now open up to questions, and next week we'll continue the um, the rest of the chapter. Yeah, so another, um, <laughs>
3: if I understand correctly. Um, You're saying that this world over is an illusion in a way, because you're saying the reality is that we don't exist at all.
1: No, it's not an illusion. It's not an illusion, God forbid. How do we know it's not an illusion? Because it says in the Torah, in the beginning God created it. You're right, that's the the only way we know it's not an illusion. But I would refer to you, actually, one of the the episodes in psychology, in the Kabbalah of the soul, Um, it's called God's Essence Revealed. And there, we discuss exactly that point from chapter 33 in Tanya, that how is it possible, how do you reconcile the two? On one hand, you're saying that from God's point of view, nothing exists but God. On the other hand, it says in the Torah, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. God is speaking, and it means it has meaning, it has value. What's the purpose of Torah and Mitzvah If everything is God and there's nothing but God? What am I accomplishing through Torah and Mitzvah? And on the contrary, it's only from the essence of God that our existence has the ultimate meaning. But we already learned it and discussed it, so I would refer to you, and then if, and then we can, if, if you have any further questions, we can. Just, you can find it on lessonsintanya.com. It's the episode on the Kabbalah and psychology of the soul called uh, God's Essence Revealed. Is this Tanya, um, when
0: the Altarag group was writing this, did he also include... His knowledge of the Zohar in writing, some of the concepts seems very similar. I've studied Zohar a little bit in my life. Absolutely. It seems because the whole idea of the Ain Sof.
1: There is an expression that Hasidus is not an explanation of the Zohar, but the Zohar is an explanation of Hasidus. And what that means is, what that means is that. There are four different levels of the Torah: there's prat, the simple; there's rem, as a hint; a drush, allegory, and seyd, the secrets of the Torah. But all of these aspects, it's like when you're listening to a lecture and you write notes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You just write notes, so you can read the notes, but the notes, not it doesn't necessarily give you the whole lecture. Hasidus, when you study Hasidus, it's like, oh, this is the lecture. Now I understand what the Zohar means. Now I understand the note that's written in the Talmud. Now I understand the note written in the commentary. Suddenly the whole Torah comes alive. Because Hasidus is the essence. This is the soul. This gives you the essence of what it's all about. Once you get to the essence of what it's all about, now I understand all the notes that Rabbi Shimon Yochai wrote in his language, in the Sod, in the Secret, the notes that the, that the Talmud uh, rise, the legal notes, but it's all notes on the same lecture because there's only one Torah. So when you study Hasidahs, suddenly it all comes alive. Suddenly every aspect of the Torah comes alive and you see that they're all saying the same thing but each one in their own, in their own way. The, the Kabbalists were expressing that this lecture in their way, they were taking notes on their level. Uh, the simple were giving, was writing notes on their level. But all of them are really all the same notes in the same lecture. This is the Chasidus. The Tanya is the very core and essence of the Torah.
3: In the higher level, how is that used, kind of in like real world? Or in real world, like in the, the <laughs> lower level was like uh, it drove the study of Torah and its and that left the wisdom to this higher level. How would that be? it seems like, if you're, if, you're like uh, if you're nullified it seems
1: like you like, yeah. well, well, it changes your whole perspective in this world because firstly um, the world no longer is a concealment, is a veil to Hashem. Once you reach that level and you realize you reach a level of egolessness and you reach a level where you become inseparable from Hashem then you look at this world completely differently. Because this world could appear to be, on the surface, a very harsh place, a very negative place, a very nasty place. The antithesis of everything that's godly and good. But once you reach the higher level of Yira, where you realize that everything is completely nullified before God, nothing really exists before God, so firstly it gives you tremendous confidence. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can stand in the way of Torah, Mitzvot, of Judaism, because nothing else exists. Otherwise, it's a struggle. Otherwise, it's a struggle, but you overcome because you have faith and you have trust and you hold on to the Torah. It gives you strength. But once you're able to see through, then there's no longer any veil. It's like the story with the Baal Shem gave a beautiful parable. He said there was a king and he, he gave everyone permission to go visit him, to speak to him. But he, didn't, he wasn't just going to make it so easy. So he, had, he created these optical illusions He had these brilliant engineers create these optical illusions. The king was sitting on the throne. But to get to him, there was a river, an insurpassable river. You just couldn't walk. And everyone came to the palace. They wanted to speak to the king. The king invited everyone to come speak to him. They, They saw this insurpassable river. They went back home. There was one wise man who says, wait a minute. The king says... He made an, he's not going to waste our time. You think he, made, he told us we can go speak to him and then he created an impossible scenario. We can't speak to him. This makes no sense. So he decided nothing is going to stop me. I'm going forward. And he went forward and he realized it was an optical illusion. There was no river. There was no obstacle. He went to the king and he met the king. He so said that's how God created the world. God says I'm accessible. Everyone can talk to me. He gave us Torah. He gave us mitzvah. But then he made it seemingly insurmountable, insurmountable obstacles. He wants us to do the right thing. He gave us an evil inclination. <laughs> We're tempted from right, left, and center. We're pulled in all different directions. Society, constant distractions. He made it almost impossible. He gave us a Torah. He gave us a way of life. And then he made it like, okay, let's see let's see if you can, who can approach me. But the truth is, from a higher point of view, you realize it's just an optical illusion. It's not, there's, there's no reality to it. And therefore, you're not intimidated. The biggest problem is most people are intimidated by the obstacles. Even before you get to overcome the obstacle, you think to yourself, I'm a little tiny Jew. How can one little tiny Jew stand up to these, these overwhelming odds? All the odds are arrayed against me. You know, it's, you become intimidated. And therefore, even if you are, are successful, you're very timid. But you're not going to take on the world. You're afraid. You're intimidated. I'm tiny. I have to know my place. I have to be quiet. But once you have the higher perspective, the real perspective, the ultimate perspective that nothing exists but God, then you're not intimidated. What do you mean? Nothing in this world could really be an obstacle. How could it be an obstacle? It must be an optical illusion because everything is God. There's no other reality but God. So it changes your whole point of view. It changes your whole perspective. And that gives you the strength to be able to tackle the world, to go out into the world and not only not be intimidated by the world and not be defined by the world, not allow the world to define itself for you, but you go ahead as a Jew and you redefine the whole entire world. You utilize all the modern techniques, the internet and all the, all the modern technology God gave us. You utilize it for its ultimate purpose. Why was it the internet created for? Ultimately, to spread Torah, to spread Qadits, to bring the awareness of Hashem. So instead of being intimidated, wow, look at this huge modern secular world that's so the opposite of godliness and and you know, and I'll sit in my corner. At best, I'll sit in my corner and I'll I'll just, you know, I'll just um, put down the hatch and, and, and I'll just be a Jew and I won't bother anyone and hopefully the world won't notice and won't bother me. But this changes your whole attitude. I mean, you're not intimidated. What do you mean? This is God's world. Wh- whom are we kidding? You're afraid, you're intimidated. This God's world. Don't allow the world to define itself as it's being coarse and grub. It's, it's an optical illusion. This world is really a Garden of Eden. This world has the potential to be a Garden of Eden. It once was a Garden of Eden. At Mount Sinai, once again, it was temporarily a Garden of Eden. and when Inevitably, Mashiach will come, and once again, the, true, the world will show its true colors. That the world is a Garden of Eden, a moral place, a wholesome place. Life doesn't have to be a jungle. The marketplace doesn't have to be a jungle. It's it's really this world could be a wholesome place, a meaningful place, a genuine place, moral, ethical, and spiritual, godly place. And that's our mission as Jews, to bring godliness into this world, to bring that awareness of godliness into this world. And that's why Jews are so stubborn and stiff-necked. We're not intimidated. Are you kidding? Ninety-nine point nine percent of the world was opposed, was against the Jew. Would we get the strength to stand up to the whole world? Thirty-eight hundred years. Abraham. Called, this week we live with the first Jew. The whole week we live with the first Jew. He was called Avrama Ivri. Why was he called Avrama Ivri? Because the whole world was on one side of the river and he was on the other side. He wasn't afraid to be different than the whole world. 99.9% of the world was opposed, was against him. And he wasn't intimidated. Where did he get such strength? This is the higher level. of You reach a level. Where you reach a level of egolessness. And you, see, and you sense Hashem, that there's no other reality but Hashem. This gives you the strength. This, this is what the Rebbe did. The Rebbe not only didn't just create a community in Crown Heights, his own community. The Rebbe was not intimidated. He went and conquered the whole world and opened up 3,600 Chabad houses just like this one all over the world, literally in every corner of the world. He says, we're going to bring Yiddishkeit and not quietly hush-hush behind locked doors. <laughs> light a menorah in public on the television, on the radio, on the internet. Publicize... Don't be intimidated. This is God's world. Don't allow the world to define itself for you. And this gives you the strength to go out, a mitzvah mobile, go out on the street, stop it, put it on tefillin, light a candle. So this comes from this level. This is the practical implication of this higher level of year when you realize that there's nothing but God. So this is God's world. And all we have to do is reveal it. We don't, and that's up to us
0: to be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com